No one's drinking the lilts, said Teresa, as she hurriedly rinsed the Pepsi cans and chucked them into the recycling bin that had already endured two foot stamps of erupting wrapping paper. They got through far too much packaging for people who voted green locally. A can fell out and rolled towards Gymnast Georgia. Sorry, he mumbled. He was arranging jumbo pigs in blankets on a brand new baking tray. The fat surely won't stick to the bottom this year and remove all the blankets, he thought. I should have got Fantas. Pop isn't my forte, is it? But you like Sam Smith, said Teresa, with a quick check he got the joke, while she skated between fridge, trunk freezer, pantry and outside bin. He looked down and mildly raised the corners of his mouth. Not anymore. Slippers are always risky in the icy weather at her age. She's hardly Darcy Bustle. She'd already been lectured by her daughter about the dangers of catching flu in hospital over Christmas. She'd never lived down the cause of death being slippers. She found the time to lean up behind him and kiss the shoulder of his cashmere. It still had the label on it. She'd offered to remove it with her sewing scissors earlier, but he told her to wait until he'd taken it for a test drive. Let's make it to call the midwife then. We can talk if you want. They'd have all gone by then. We can tidy up properly tomorrow. Gymnast Georgia twitched and said something about a full-in, full-out tuck. Those triple A's are already low, he mumbled. False economy getting the saints for his own, isn't it? That infamous Christmas, when they told their friends in the village that their COVID tests hadn't come back yet. In truth, they'd had four days to talk it all through. During those days, they'd pass each other around the house like temp job colleagues. They apologised for getting in each other's way, but wouldn't normally bother. They asked questions they wouldn't normally need to ask, like, shall I open the Bendix chocks after their cold meat platter? Their time was awful. No jokes about tap dancing whilst brushing teeth. No slippers on top of each other at the foot of the bed pretending to spoon. Nothing loving since he told her. It had happened during the final part of Philip Schofield's How to Spend It Well at Christmas. Straight after a five-star review of a BG Dynamo centrifugal electric juicer. I have strong feelings for someone else, he'd said, but I don't want to talk about it anymore. It's a private matter. Teresa remembers the tissue in her hand for the hour afterwards. It became twisted, thumbed, kneaded and squeezed so much it ended up looking like mummified icing. She was so scared of losing him and her whole world being destroyed she'd not asked a single question after he'd spoken. The only one she could muster was, are we still going to Dobby's on New Year's Day? They always browse the sales gilets. Last year they picked up a bargain pair of ceramic grandparent ornaments for beside the pond they got damaged at the hands of Pickles the cat from number 19. Following his admittance, he'd spent the four days like an imprint of his former self. The days came and went, and by the time their son came round with the girls on the 27th, he'd woken up and taken himself off to Budgeons for Blue Alpen. 
but he didn't need it. He never ran lower than half a box. The dark was suddenly upon them, and they found themselves at the front door, watching their son rearrange the boot. Anne and Clive were going to Tuscany again in July. Should we think about booking costs? I think we should. Maybe, he said. Let's see what Martin Lewis says about that M&S credit card, shall we? They waved and waved until the lights of the car had turned into Sycamore Drive. Stilton? No. Got that Ian Banks one to finish before I start on the new Wenger biog I got from Santa. Teresa reached to hold his index finger in her hand. She gripped it like a child on a new bike handle. You're my AAA batteries, you know. I need you. He didn't reply. But instead, he brought his cold hands over hers in a way a priest might do after Mass. They shared what little warmth they had. Go on, let's have some stilton, actually, shall we? He said, it's not like it gets any better with age now, is it? Nice bit of soil, that, observes Dennis, as the mortal remains of his best friend John Gledhill are consigned to the grave. He straightens up, rubs his hands together and turns to Jenny for reassurance. She smiles. Dennis watches the long wheelbase Mercedes cresting the hill over Jenny's shoulder. He follows it as it disappears briefly behind the church, appearing again on the bottom road below the cemetery. Written along its side in a jaunty yellow typeface, it says, Burger me, here come the tastiest burgers in town. John loved a burger, Dennis mutters. What's that, love? says Jenny. John loved a burger, says Dennis. Did he? That's nice, says Jenny. The funeral party follows the vicar back to the church. His robes billow about him in the wind like they should like they would were he in a 1970s TV adaptation of a classic gothic novel. Several times he stumbles on the tussock grass but manages to maintain his footing. It was a lovely service, thank you vicar, say several people one after the other. Can I use the toilet, says Dennis. Jenny reads the parish notices while she waits for Dennis to relieve himself. A download app from the Scripture Union called Guardians of Ankara is highly recommended and free to download and play. Bring the story of the resurrection to live in the heart of a child this Easter. Please see the leaflet at the welcome desk for details or visit guardiansofankara.com. Also, the theme of the creative extravaganza this Sunday the 23rd is Seeds of Hope. Hopes are that it'll be a really positive, hope-filled and fun day for people of all ages. A bit of Dennis's shirt is poking through his fly. You're a bit maladjusted, Dennis love, says Jenny. On their trip back into town in the Peugeot, Dennis and Jenny are accompanied by a scratched Bruce Hornsby CD. Neither Dennis or Jenny want to dwell on the past or think much about the future. So the little conversation there is revolves around their immediate plans. That's just the way it is. 
Jenny has a train to catch and Dennis has got some sweet peas to plant out. As they exit the motorway, there's a protracted and one-sided conversation about the logistics involved in avoiding the roadworks on the ring road. But on the whole, in the gaps between Bruce Hornsby, it's just the whir of the heater, the rustle of anoraks and the clack of boiled sweets against dentures. Some things will never change. Dennis pulls the Peugeot into the short stay and he and Jenny make their way to the entrance of the station past the boy in the Spider-Man pyjamas, past the man in the shorts and flip-flops, past the greyhound pissing against the bus shelter, past the woman with the lanyard and yoga pants. They follow the series of silver bollards that weren't there the last time, and there, parked up against the concourse wall, is the Bergamie Mercedes with its yellow awning and exotic hot sauces. A thick-set man in a pinny is tending a griddle in the service hatch, and for a brief moment, Dennis actually mistakes him for John Gledhill. He looks nothing like him, his hair is thicker and darker, he's smiling, and besides, John never worked in a burger van, he just liked burgers. Why is the bedroom so cold? The bay window whispers to me, its spiky breath tracing my shank. The tired veiny meat hung poised over the volant. I probe with the gentlest of fingertips across the goose pimples and wonder if this is a sign. Is my horripilation spelling out a message from you as we approach the witching hour? My heart battles against my ribcage, disarmingly slow. Outside, an orgy of common frogs is building to a crescendo in the soggy basin of my abandoned chimney. I imagine hoglets emerging from slumber, embarrassed at the debauchery of amphibians. Tiggywinkle always struck me as a prude. Here I lie, hag-ridden, yet alive, waiting for your next move. I look down, confused to see the pitched roof of a house. Am I actually dead? No, it is the 268 pages of the crime cliché, impossible blackness in the inverted V. I hear the vague burble of condensation spit bubbles where the Zinfandel bottle meets the bedside table from British Heart Foundation. I want to reach over and break the seal, but I can't. I'm stuck here. My areoli chafe angrily on the pocket stitching of my crisp pyjama top. My love currents seeking escape from their alcatraz. The smell of warm milk and tobacco floods the room, although no one has smoked in this house for nine years. Since... I close my eyes and hope for your face. I see more than nothing, the depth of the darkness incredible. The breathing begins again along my clavicle. The exhalation pauses momentarily by the calcified crack. Its lips come to rest on the white scar and sour drool runs from my gaping mouth 
and pools in my jugular notch. I would always face away from you in sleep, so that my stale mouth was a secret. A fingernail, perhaps, on the double glazing, or the pilot light clicking on down the hallway. The door to my chamber creeps ajar so slowly. A long minute of nothing. I close my eyes again, frustrated that my dream escapes me. The wolf prowls, but is not in the room. The mattress gives ever so slightly at the bottom right-hand corner, and the springs begin the gentlest sonata. Arnold's dad, Frank, was like a broken heap of clockwork. Hawkish weeds sprouted from his ears, liver spots rusted across his hands. He struggled to digest anything without getting bloated nowadays. During his working life, he'd ended as a gardener, but for many years he'd busted his back as a labourer. He'd turned gardener when it became a bona fide profession when money muffin-topped around the green belt of the capital. He'd sheared Biggin Hill's hedges, He'd turfed the flat lands of Orpington, and there wasn't a mile of Pratt's bottom he hadn't mowed. His face was so furrowed, he'd engraved deep trenches into his saggy skin. Frank was the embodiment of the surliness most people endure before the relief of needing a piss. The only phrase he'd said that ever resembled a compliment was, fair point. Before his wheelchair, he was found cutting his grass lying on his back with a pair of scissors in each hand. His son Arnold had been called out after 9pm by a neighbour who wasn't so much concerned about him but conscious of the devaluation of her semi living next to a batty old fella. Arnold's principal memory of his mother was being constantly shushed by his father. She died of an ignored cancer that struck like a hidden assassin when he was only nine. Frank had grown up in extreme poverty in south-east London. He still sounded like Bill Sykes, even though he'd worked his back to the bone to get Arnold a place at Tunbridge Grammar. You could take the man out of Southwark, but you can't take the Southwark out of the man. Some nights he made Alf Garnet sound like Owen Jones. He needed wheeling about the place nowadays, and he didn't communicate much at all with anyone, aside from asking when questions. Never how and certainly never to what extent. Caring for Frank, if that doesn't reinterpret the word too much, was now principally about timekeeping for him, keeping his routine in firm check, avoiding anything unexpected, a steady tick-tock towards the power of attorney, and thereafter a very short eulogy. Just leave the bloody map in my lap, will you, boy? This is how Frank entered the 13th century castle on this particular Sunday. Probably his final castle, given the wheelchair usage. Then it'd be an attempt at the big castle in the sky. Fury crept up on his only son Arnold, but he muffled it with a quick check of the site map. Some information there about a proposal for a reconstruction of the original trebuchet. Don't stand behind me, will ya? I feel like a puppet with your hand up my ass. Arnold moved his MS brogues in line with the footrest and pointed to a patch of grass. What might he want for his lunch? He wondered. 
beef and egg baps again probably. He recalled the smell of such a nasty bap when they went to the steam railway last month and it rained. Who else would dare put beef alongside egg? When do you want your lunch? inquired Arnold. When do I want lunch? Just had breakfast you clown. They hadn't. Frank ate his all brown at 6.30 every morning with a musty tea towel as a bib and then followed it with a stool so soft it was like raw meringue and you wouldn't risk putting that over your head. Arnold loved to immerse himself in the whole world of the sight and he kept a notebook of facts. He usually went alone and pretended he was doing a BBC4 Saturday night documentary. His imaginary co-host was Dr Alice Roberts but he would never admit that to anyone. He'd search for images of her while swimming once, but then he deleted his search history. He never bothered with the gift shop afterwards, the 899 bottle of mead, the anachronistic historical fiction, or the Harris Tweed tea cosy didn't interest him. He was there to immerse himself in information and just escape the world he lived in for an hour or two. Perhaps the lack of keep gave this particular castle a somewhat sparse approach to revelment, said Arnold to start something stimulating but forgetting who he was with I need another dump replied Frank pointing to the disabled toilets this wasn't the stimulation Arnold had hoped for above his wiry hair rain began spitting on Arnold he wasn't even certain it was raining until he checked the puddles in the car park for droplets he suddenly had thoughts of his mother and that special story about the little mouse who loved his mummy. Her face became blurred in his memory as the rain increased, and eventually her face morphed into Alice Roberts's. Frank's sudden explosive fart sounded like a horse's neigh. Just get me back to the car, will you, boy? I want me own carsy. Happy Father's Day, Dad, thought Arnold. The key when question here was when would he just die? I'm here now and that's all that matters, says Maureen. She missed her usual bus when she nipped back to pick up the begonia cuttings. Here you are, love, she says, handing them to Barbara wrapped in a ten-year-old Jack Fulton carrier bag. Oh, what's this? Oh, just summer to know, explains Maureen as she reaches for the grab rail next to the front door. I'm sorry I'm late. I don't know why the driver couldn't have waited for me, to be honest. He knows I'm the only one who ever gets that bus. I've never seen another soul on it in five years. Maureen pauses on the top step to let the pain in her knee subside. It's never been right since she fell off that narky cob called Lee Majors while pony trekking in the Amber Valley with Ken in 1980. She follows Barbara down the narrow hallway lined with boxes of knick-knacks for the sale and in the dining room they join Peter at the table by the patio doors for the best light. He's gluing pheasant's tail feathers into the paws of plastic meerkats. Oh, look at these, exclaims Maureen. Aren't they just perfect? They are, aren't they, says Barbara. I'll let Peter show you the ropes while I get us a glass of something bubbly. Barbara disappears into the kitchen, arranges the begonias in jam jars along the window sill, and uses the Whitby Abbey sunset tea towel to cover the cork while she wrestles it from a bottle of Prosecco. 
Where on earth did you get these? Maureen asks Peter as she inspects an astronaut-themed meerkat, space helmet in one paw, a pheasant's tail feather in the other. Pam from the choir donated them, explains Peter, as son Stuart rescued them from that club he had in town when it shut down. The moment Peter saw the meerkats he knew what to do, they were crying out for it really. He went up into the eaves and found the bag of pheasant feathers he bought by mistake in the early days of eBay. He always knew they'd come in. After attaching a feather to the paw of the first meerkat, an Elvis Presley in a rhinestone jumpsuit one, he knew he was onto something. It just lifted it somehow, took things to another level. Barbara sets down some champagne flutes and produces the bottle of Prosecco with a flourish. Peter abstains, so Barbara and Maureen shared it between them while the three of them set about gluing the feathers and touching up any scuffed bits of meerkat with Peter's humbrel enamels. After a lunch of cheese and Derek from Number Three's chutney, they carry the boxes down the drive past the last of the sweet peas, past the Help for Heroes stickers on the wheelie bin and into the boot of the roomy Doblo. On hearing Maureen and Barbara's earthy and largely involuntary vocalisations as they bend and twist themselves into the back seats, Peter, who has now changed into some important knitwear, resolves to maintain some poise as he lowers himself into the driver's seat. He completes the first phase of the operation with no unwanted emissions, but as he hikes himself forward into the optimum driving position, he hits his forehead on the edge of the Doblo's half-up, half-down sun visor and issues a loud, Ooh, you bugger! followed by a shit, shit, shit. Peter pulls the Doblo up outside the village hall. I stand with Ukraine bunting visible through the security grills of the windows. He manages to clamber from his seat in a relatively dignified silence. He opens the rear door to help out Maureen who sets off towards the entrance in search of the red sack cart. According to Peter, everyone knows it's better than the new green one. Maureen pulls at the handle of the double doors but they don't move. She yanks again, nothing. She peers in through the mucky wired glass panel but she can't see anyone. There are no lights on. She checks her watch. On the notice board in the entrance lobby, she can see a poster advertising the sale. Against the familiar yellow and blue background of the Ukrainian flag, it says, Bric-a-brac sale in aid of Ukraine, and below that, next Saturday's date. Dorothy, Eva and Bert, they always wait till there's a car driving past, don't they? She nodded, exhaling in stages through her willowy nostrils, and took the gossamer thin bag from her pocket. Bert stood back respectfully, doubting that the budget brand black sack would be sufficient for the Labrador's afters. The quick sizing up proved him right. She snapped the knotted waist swiftly, taking the remainder in a second bag. In their frosty evening meeting place, 
the lingering menace of her repeat Avon order was crudely broken. Bert noticed Dorothy struggle to leave her crouching position, struggle to steady herself on creaking bow legs. How old we've become, he thought sadly to himself. What's that, Bert? I didn't say anything, he said. Dorothy stood mechanically, her lashes claggy, as she looked up into his swirling grey eyes. Storm drains of melancholy since time immemorial. His collie, Nell, licked greedily at the woman's fingers. She's always liked you, said Bert. As they moved on, the crisp ground made pink, pink noises beneath their feet. Dorothy was reminded of the squeaking sensation of the oasis she used when arranging flowers in church. She thought of how they had met at that dance before Bert had joined the Navy and left her to Roger. Bert rummaged in the depths of his fleece until he retrieved that which he sought. Like a diamond plucked from a dusty mine in Botswana, he held the fox's glacier fruit out in front of his walking partner. Is it? Bert finished her sentence. It is. A purple one. Dorothy slurped the boiled sweet, and its sound on her teeth was that of a cheap children's xylophone. Her gratitude, dare we call it love, was the gentlest pat on his forearm. As she turned back into her driveway, Bert gave her the most brusque goodnight and felt the ghost of her hand searing through his sleeve, a life force that gave him the sustenance until tomorrow.